Uh, before we get going, it's worth saying that the verses we're looking at tonight, verses uh, 21 to 25, 26, are in the original language just one sentence. And scholars recognize that this sentence is the very heart of the book of Romans. Uh, that its themes run through the whole letter, much as arteries might flow through a body. And they're rich, if you like, with the blood of Jesus. Indeed, when you think about it, if the book of Romans is like um, the Himalayan mountains in the scriptures, then this sentence is Mount Everest, the highest and most glorious peak in the whole Bible. Which, when you think about it, means if the most important book in all the world is the Bible, and the most important book in the Bible is Romans, and the most important sentence in Romans is this one, then tonight we're looking at the most important sentence ever written. Now that is fairly daunting, isn't it? But it's also a great privilege. So let's uh, begin with prayer, and let's ask God to help us understand it. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this sentence. And whether we're very familiar with the Bible or very new to it, please would you help each one of us tonight to understand this amazing paragraph. Would you help us not only to understand it, but to believe it and to leave here willing to live by it. We're not interested in just being entertained. We want to live the right way. So please would you speak to us by your spirit through your word now, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you remember from previous weeks, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in Rome, um, almost certainly at the end of the AD 50s from Corinth, he wrote uh, to introduce himself to them, he'd never met them before, to unite Jew and Gentile within the church together and to recruit the support of the church for his intended mission to Spain. He'd been working in, in uh, uh, the Middle East and he wanted to head west for Europe. And so the whole letter really explains the gospel of God and the need of the whole world for that gospel. If you remember the introduction in chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, Paul explained that the gospel of God is all about the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. And that this gospel is the power of God for salvation for anyone who believes this gospel. Because in it is revealed the righteousness of God, the saving holiness of God. Now, in the next section of the, the letter, all the rest until our passage now, chapter 1, verse 18, through to chapter 3, verse 20, he explains why the whole world needs the righteousness of God in the gospel about Christ. Essentially, he's shown that the whole world, all people everywhere, are unrighteous. You see, we've all rejected God, and we all like to reshape him with the idolatry of our hearts, where we make him more convenient so as to practice the various kinds of immorality that we prefer. 
And therefore, we're all unrighteous and facing the wrath of God. In fact, Paul has shown quite clearly that uh, whether we're pagan or religious or moral or Jewish, whatever background we come from, we're all guilty of rejecting God. We're all unrighteous. And we're all facing the wrath of God. I mean, you see it there in chapter 3, verse 10. As Paul concludes that rather sobering section, as it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. People are the same all over the world. We're unrighteous. Or chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. We just can't keep God's law. We're unrighteous. Now, he's been explaining in these verses, that means that all of us, each one of us, is genuinely in serious trouble with God. We're facing his wrath. See, we are way, way short of what he expects from us. We're nowhere near what he needs in us for us to live with him. We're unrighteous and facing the wrath of God. Now, when you understand what that means, that is really bad news. I was trying to think of an analogy for that, and I suppose it's, it's a little bit like what it must be like when you, you're finally admitted to a ward, gasping for breath, and the oxygen cylinder doesn't, isn't enough anymore. And you're lying in your bed, and the consultant surgeon comes in and says, I'm afraid the, the lung cancer is terminal. There's, there's nothing more we can do for you. And you know it's been serious. You've been smoking 30 a day for the last three decades. You know it's all been wrong. You've been short of breath for years and years. You look like death. And now you know that's where it's heading. You're without hope, facing a terrible, terrible end with lung cancer. And it's a bit like that, you see. We need to understand that we're in serious trouble with God spiritually. We've known we've been wrong. We've been rejecting God for years. All of us do it. And now we're under the wrath of God. And now we're facing his condemnation when we meet him one day. And that's a dreadful place to be. And then Paul says something absolutely wonderful with two little words in verse 21. They're just the most amazing and wonderful words. Look at verse 21. But now. But now. You can could, you could, you could probably sing them. But now. God has done something in history, something so amazing, so wonderful. What is it? He's revealed the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. That is God's holy goodness. Uh, both in his character, in who he is, and in what he gives us, the righteousness that we need. Uh, the righteousness of God is a word that's also translated in this paragraph as uh, justify or justice. And when you look at all those words, six times he talks about this righteousness of God in this sentence. Six times. That's what it's all about. He says about this righteousness, the saving holiness of God. He's returning, you see, to chapter 1, verse 17, his big theme sentence. That in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What does he say about it? He says, look, it's apart from law. That is, it's not from the works of Old Testament law like it used to be in the, in the previous era. That era is finished now. It's been made known. That is, it's evident in history. All of us can look at it now. All of us can study the righteousness of God because it's now made public. It's something to which the law and the prophets testify. That is to say, it's, it's what the Old Testament always promised. It's not contrary to the Old Testament. 
In fact, it's the fulfillment, the crowning climax and fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament in the righteousness of God. This righteousness of God has now arrived as the divine solution to the human problem. God's righteousness for our unrighteousness. Now, in this great passage, he's going to show us about this righteousness, firstly, what it is in verses 22 to 23, then in how it, how it works in verses 24 to 25, and then why he's done it, verses 25 to 26. So it's as if the consultant surgeon has come back the next day, and there you are, lying in your bed, you know, facing this dreadful future. And the consultant comes in and says to you, look, I've got some very, very serious and very wonderful news for you. Something has been done. That means it's possible for you to live. And I want to explain to you what it is. Okay, That's what he's talking about. First thing, three things. First thing, the righteousness of God is given to all in Christ. Given to all in Christ. Look at verse 22 with me, will you? This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul is plainly now speaking about the righteousness of God being given to us. The righteousness we don't have in ourselves, but given to us, so that we can, verse 24, be justified, that is, declared righteous in his sight. We're not yet told how all that works. Chapters 4 and 5 will make that plain. But the saving righteousness of God is what we now receive from God. And Paul says it's through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not, as some have said, the faithfulness of Christ. It's through faith in Christ. That is, entrusting in him for it rather than ourselves. Relying upon Christ for our righteousness rather than trying to live enough ourselves. So it's through faith in Christ, and it's for all who believe. Now, this is absolutely wonderful news. It means that whatever nation we come from, whatever religious background we've got, whatever culture, whatever kind of family, whatever kind of neighborhood we grew up with, wherever we have come from, this righteousness is available to us in Christ. Which is good news because, verse 23, we all need it. Since all have sinned in rejecting God, and all, all of us fall well short of the glory of God that he expects. I mean, all of us reject him and tell him to push off and leave us alone so we can get on with living the life we want to live. We've all done it in different ways. Some more politely than others. But we've all fallen well short of the glory for which we were created. So the big news is that God's righteousness is not just for an elite few. It's not just for Jews. It's for everybody. You see, it's not just for Spain. It's also for the UK. It's not just for Westerners. It's for everybody. The righteousness of God that everybody needs is available for everybody in Christ. Is that not fantastic news? Isn't that wonderful? Any, any of us... Wherever we come from, whatever we're like, all of us can find the righteousness of God that we need in Christ. Isn't God wonderful? I mean, sometimes I wonder, you know, why do we do all this stuff with people from 
other cultures and nations in London. We're absolutely committed in this church to bringing the, the message of Christ to people of every background and culture. Why have we got fellowships amongst Koreans and South Africans and Chinese people? And we need one amongst Polish people. If you speak Polish, come and see me afterwards. There's so many Polish people. Why are we bothering? Haven't they got their own religions? Of course they've got their own religions. But those religions can't give them the righteousness of God because that's only available in Christ. See, why are we planning um, a mission to, to the nation in 2010? Why can't we leave the rest of the nation alone? Because the whole nation needs Christ. Why are we planning something for the Olympics in 2012? So that when the, the nations of the world come to London, they don't just go home with all our medals, but they go home with the gospel. Why are we planning that? Haven't they got their own faith? Haven't they got their own culture? Of course they have. But the righteousness of God is only available in Christ. So they need Christ. Or they'll face the wrath of God. Why do you and I need to invite our colleagues and our friends to come and do Christianity Explored? It's really embarrassing asking people, isn't it? You know, plucking up the courage to say something. What did you say? It's always embarrassing. We've all done it. Why do we have to do that? Because without the righteousness of God, they remain under the wrath of God. But the great news is that the righteousness of God is available for them too. For the guy you sit next to, for the woman who sits opposite you in your office, for the people you teach, the people you listen to, the people you live next to, the people you're on the tube, the righteousness of God is available for every single one of them in Christ. They just don't know about it. So we've got to tell them that what they need is available in Christ. So the first thing is that the righteousness of God is given to all in Christ. The second thing that we learn is that the righteousness of God is accomplished through the death of Christ. Accomplished through the death of Christ. Look at verses 24 or 25. And are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. The three great Old Testament perspectives upon the death of Christ are all summarized for us in these couple of these few words. It's amazing. The, 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 the perspectives come firstly from the law court, then from the slave market, and then from the temple. Firstly, the law court, the word justify, justification. Justification means to be declared righteous by God. It's, it's the judgment day declaration that we all long to hear. And we can actually hear it now when we come to Christ. That we're declared righteous and acceptable to him in advance of judgment day. Now the, the Old Testament background to this comes in Isaiah 53 in the great suffering servant passage where we read about the great suffering servant described 800 years before he arrived in great detail, that Jesus would be one who would justify many. God says, my righteous servant will justify many. That is, he will share his righteousness with many other people. And now Jesus has come to share his righteousness with us. And so we can be accepted by God. How do we know his life is acceptable? Because God has already raised him from the dead. 
He's already accepted him into heaven. The life that is reckoned to us is already in heaven. So we know that we're acceptable to God in the life of Christ, in his righteousness. It's a wonderful thing to be accepted by God. To know right now that whatever I've done, all the terrible things I still do, I am acceptable to God because of Christ. He still gets fed up when I let him down, but I am acceptable to him in the righteousness of Christ. Is that not fantastic? To stop feeling so worthless and useless and to know you're acceptable to God in him? Well, it goes on to the second. The second word is redemption. This is the perspective of the slave market. To be redeemed means to be liberated upon the payment of a ransom price. See, at the cost of Jesus' death, we can be freed from sin and Satan and death. The Old Testament background to this is in the liberation of Israel from slavery in Egypt, in the great Exodus rescue, when the blood of a lamb bought the rescue of the people. And now in the same way, the blood of Jesus has bought our freedom. And so we are now free, free from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. And it's a wonderful thing to know real freedom. I've mentioned it before, but um, Jason Robinson, who's um, well, one of the greatest rugby players this country's ever produced, got to be better than Habana. I mean, Habana's quite short-term, isn't he? Jason Robinson's long-term, and we'll see whether Habana's still around later. Sorry, we're just talking rugby for those who don't understand, but... Jason Robinson is a, is a wonderful Christian man, a man of real integrity. And in his um, autobiography, he says that a lot of his mates uh, in the various rugby clubs he's, he's played for said to him, isn't your life restricted by being a Christian? Isn't your life kind of burdensome by being a Christian? He says, no, it's the opposite. He says, now I'm really free. Before I became a Christian, you see, I could only ever say yes to everything. I just couldn't stop myself. But now I'm free to say no. I can say yes or no. I'm free now in a way I wasn't before. I can say no to sin. And we can say no to sin. We don't have to sin anymore. We do, but we don't have to. We're free not to. Because we've been set free from the power and, of course, the penalty of sin. It's a wonderful thing to be set free by Jesus. Thirdly, there's the language of sacrifice. Literally, it's propitiation. This is the perspective of a temple, and it means the satisfaction of God's wrath. It means that God has been satisfied by the death of his son. The Old Testament background to this is in the temple, and in Leviticus 16, if you want to know the text, in the Day of Atonement ceremony, where the blood of a goat was splattered in the middle of the temple to satisfy God that somebody had died in the place of the people. But it's only ever a picture of Jesus' death on the cross. For Jesus is the place where blood was spattered to satisfy God and avert his wrath. It's a wonderful thing, you see, therefore, to be welcomed into the presence of God, to be at peace with God, to be able to speak with him every day, to live in his presence, to call upon him any moment of the day, to put your head on the pillow at night and know there is no problem between me and God. God is on my side now. He's not against me. Because he's been satisfied concerning my sin. Is that not a wonderful thing, to know peace with God in your heart? We are accepted by God, free for God, at peace with God, 
But notice, it's all through the death of Jesus. Now, this is absolutely brilliant news, but isn't it shocking when you think about it? That somebody had to actually bleed to death for this to be possible? He did so in public a couple of thousand years ago. The historians were right about it. He had to do that. You see, sometimes they say, why did Jesus have to die? Well, he had to die to satisfy God. It's a bit like the, um, the surgeon who's come into your, to your bedside, and as you're lying there, heaving for breath, but you just heard this brilliant news that something could be done. He then explains what's happened. You know the junior doctor that was with me earlier today? He's my son. And he has now died, and his lungs are available for you. I mean, how shocking is that? Yeah, we came to an arrangement that my son would die, that his lungs would be available to be transplanted for you. I mean, you'd just be absolutely gobsmacked. I mean, wonderful. But how amazing that these doctors should love you so much as to be prepared to do that for you. How amazing that God should, should love us so much that he has done it for you and for me. The third thing we learn is that the righteousness of God is not only given to all in Christ, not only accomplished in the death of Christ, but lastly, demonstrated in the punishment of Christ. Demonstrated in the punishment of Christ. Look at verse 25. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. See, this is why God has made his righteousness available in Christ. To demonstrate his justice. God doesn't have to prove anything to anybody. But he wanted to show the world that his salvation is just. He's not just said, oh, let's just forget about all the sin that everybody does. You know, let's just turn a blind eye and we'll not care about it. Because to do that, of course, would be utterly immoral. For God to say, I don't care about all the people you've hurt. I don't care about the way you've treated me. We'll just forget it, shall we? But what about all the victims? What about all the people who've been hurt by the way we treat each other in this world? And God is not prepared to do that. He wants to punish sin because it's wrong. But he also wants to save us who do the wrong. And so you see, he demonstrated his justice in punishing sin in Christ. He goes on to say it's the same for, the, for believers before Christ as for believers after Christ. The sins of believers beforehand were never fully punished, just as our sins are only fully punished in Christ. So you see, for believers before Jesus, just like believers after Jesus, the full punishment we deserve was poured out upon Christ when he died on the cross. And so says Paul, God is just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. See, God wanted to be righteous, to be good and holy, both in punishing sin properly and in saving sinners rightly. He wanted to do both. And the only way to do both was to give himself in his son. 
to die on the cross, to suffer the punishment for our sin, and to provide the righteousness we need. And in that way, he saved us justly. He hasn't fiddled the books. He hasn't done a sneak somewhere. He hasn't cheated in some way that's going to come back and bite us one day. It's all been done properly and justly through the death of Christ on the cross. You see, on that cross, Christ swapped places with all who trust in him. And there he was treated as if he was us and punished for our sin so that we can be treated as if we were him and accepted in his righteousness. So the righteousness of God, you see, is given to all in Christ, achieved through the death of Christ, and demonstrates, demonstrated in the punishment of Christ. One last thing. Do you notice a little phrase that comes three times in each of the sections? Do you see there in verse 22? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 25, through faith in his blood. Verse 26, through faith in Jesus. This righteousness of God that we need becomes ours through faith in Christ. It just means through trusting him for it rather than ourselves. You see, rather than relying upon our own lives to save us, I do hope God will be impressed enough with my life. No, he won't be. Rather than relying upon ourselves, relying upon Christ for the righteousness we need. He has lived the life. He has died the death that we should. And his righteousness can be counted as ours. And we must trust him for it. And the implications are twofold. Firstly, there's no need for despair. There's no need for despair. It may be that you arrived in church tonight very aware of the many ways in which we fail God. Yet again. Just can't stop it. Or the many ways that we let God down, the way we hurt other people. For some of us, there's carnage everywhere. Relationships shattered, people hurt. The record is not good. And we're close to despair. We just keep running to try not to think about it. But actually, when you stop and think about it, we have not got a hope before God. Not a hope. But there is no need to despair. You see, because this righteousness is available to all, whoever we are, wherever we come from, whatever we've done with whomever we've done it. Whatever we have done, this righteousness of God is available to us in Christ. Is that not fantastic? You think, yes, but how does it work? It's been done through Christ. It's been done, through, it's been done justly. It's all been sorted, so there's no need to despair. If there are any who are here tonight who know that you're a sinner, that you deserve the wrath of God, you need the righteousness of God, because without it, you're sunk. What a wonderful evening for you to finally, when our eyes are closed in prayer, to ask God to provide his righteousness for us in Jesus. And you can know, you can know what Paul speaks about here. You can know that you're acceptable to God, that you're free from your sin now, that you're at peace with God, and go home rejoicing. Just ask him for the righteousness you need in Christ. Also, the other implication, though, is no boasting. There's no room for boasting. On what basis do any of us think we're superior to anybody else? Paul goes on to explain that in the rest of the chapter. There's no need for any boasting. Whether we grew up in a Christian family or a Buddhist family, whatever country we come from, you know, however many bad deeds or good deeds we think we've done, there's no room for any boasting. 
because we all need the righteousness of God in Christ. We all need salvation in the same way. Nobody can get to heaven in any other way than by trusting in Christ's righteousness for us. So no one's better than anybody else. We're all sinners in need of the righteousness of God. So we need to get rid of that condescending, superior attitude that often unbelievers pick up in us. When we talk as if we're absolutely sorted and poor old Ben, they don't understand salvation like we do, we need to get off our high horse and remember that it's only in the righteousness of God that we're safe. So no boasting, no despair, and no boasting. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Just a moment of quiet for us to think through what we've heard tonight before I lead us in a prayer, and then we'll take a few questions. Oh God in heaven, you know the reality of our hearts and our lives. You know our unrighteousness. You know how we have ignored you. You know how we have really lived, even if no one else knows. You know that we are unrighteous and deserving of your wrath. But now we thank you for making your righteousness available to us. Thank you that your righteousness, the righteousness we need, is available to every one of us in Christ. We praise you that it was achieved through the death of Christ. We acknowledge that it demonstrates, it's demonstrated in the punishment of Christ, that you are just and right in the way you save us. And so, Lord God, we don't want to despair. From the bottom of our hearts, we cry to you, Father, please would you give to us the righteousness of Christ, your righteousness. Count it to us, for we don't have it ourselves. Help us to put our faith in Christ, to trust in him, to rely upon him for your righteousness, and not in ourselves. Send us home humble and not boasting, remembering that it's only in Christ that we're safe. And would you give us many opportunities this coming week to invite our friends and colleagues to come and find out about it, to find the righteousness of God that they need to in Christ. We ask it all for his glory alone. Amen. Well, listen, we always um, make a few moments just for questions or comments or indeed any prophetic insight into how this passage applies to us. Does anybody have any, any comments they'd like to make or questions you'd like to ask uh, about anything that I've said uh, tonight? Yep. If I've understood the question, the question in verse 31, because you've read ahead, um, it wasn't read earlier. Um, that's all right. I don't need to say anything at this point. <laughs> Um, it is absolutely right that because Christ is the fulfillment of the law, we don't abandon the law. We still do keep it. But we'll look in later chapters at how we do that. Basically, we keep it in the light of the gospel of Christ. But it's a complex question. And we'll look at that in chapters to come. Yep. Anyone who, who was here in time for the reading might like to ask a question? Richard.
Yes, the question I think is, um, this passage plainly says that we're saved through faith in Christ and not by our works. But many people persist in the idea we're saved by our works. How do we respond to that? I think it's helpful to to say, it's quite shocking when you read in chapter 2, that their instinct is right. We are saved by works. Because God, God will only let those who are righteous, those who have righteous works, who live righteously, live with him, because he is righteous. So their instinct is right. What they're not facing is how they're getting on in that righteousness. See, chapter 2 makes, makes quite plain that, that if they do live righteously, if they do good and don't do evil, they can live in heaven. The trouble is, when we start being honest about it, none of us do good. None of us is righteous. None of us has, has the works to offer to God. And it's frightening as you read through that chapter, you realize, yeah, I'm guilty of that, I'm guilty of this, I'm guilty of the other. We all do this. You think of our pride, our lust, our anger, our jealousy, our envy, you know, and all these dreadful things that go on in our hearts. And we are saved by works, it's just we don't have them. And so we're sunk. Where is the righteousness we need? Answer in the only perfect righteous life that's ever been lived in Christ. So it's good to, to, to establish the common ground that their instinct is right, that God should bless good people. He should accept good people. It's just we're nowhere near good enough. And so God has made the righteousness we need available in Christ. That's the way I would go. Is that how Richard? Yeah. Devlin. Devlin, you're absolutely right. Real faith in Christ is always demonstrated in works. It's just that we're not saved by those works. We're saved by the works of Christ. So in other words, the outworking, the, the, the results of trusting in Jesus is a changed life. And you'll see it. If you are a Christian or if you know someone who becomes a Christian, you see the change in their life. But we're not saved by that change, by those re- results. Those are the results of being saved. Now, it's good that you asked that question because Paul was, he faces that question himself. You see, we have to hear that it's so much a gift from God in Christ that we start saying, well, don't we have to do anything then? Are we saying that we don't have to have, have good works? That's exactly what people said to Paul when he preached this gospel. And we need to hear the shock in this, that the whole of it is provided in Christ. All right? You don't have to do anything for your salvation. It's all been done in Christ. Nothing. All been done in Christ. And hear the, hear the, hear the wonder in that. But the result, of course, when somebody understands that, they then want to be different, and they will be. We'll get to that in later chapters in Romans. Thanks, Devlin. Any other last question or, or comment?